Verse 9. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed his inmost person. All these signs happened on that very day. So the people saying very specific things and the people giving him very specific things happened. When Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a company of prophets was coming out to meet him. Then the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, and he prophesied among them. When everyone who had been known known him previously saw him prophesying with the prophets, the people asked one another, What on earth has happened to the son of Kish? Does even Saul belong with the prophets? So he's right in his hometown. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of Yahweh comes upon him. He starts prophesying. And people who know him are like, what the heck? Saul has never act like a prophet. Has he been chosen to be a prophet all of a sudden? Who is his father? A man who was from the replied, and who is their father? Now, the word doesn't mean like, who's Saul's father? Because they just said they know who Saul is. The word father can also mean teacher. Like, has Saul been chosen by a prophet? And this prophet is now teaching him and anointing him to be that? Is even Saul among the prophets? And when Saul had finished prophesying, he went to the high place. Saul's uncle asked him and his servant, Where did you go? Saul replied, To look for the donkeys. But when we realized that they were lost, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, Tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul said to his uncle, He assured us that the donkeys had been found. But Saul did not tell him what Samuel had said about the matter of kingship. Then Samuel called the people together before Yahweh at Mizpah. And he said to the Israelites, this is what Yahweh the God of Israel says. What do you notice? He didn't kill the Philistines. Spirit of Yahweh came upon him and he went straight on home. And his dad is like, hey, where have you been? What happened? I'm almost wondering, like, did he get all the oil out of his hair? You walk home, you got just like your hair is just covered in oil. Olive oil is not easy to get out of your hair. <laughs> I mean, it's not like they have like herbal essence like right there and he can take a shower before he sees his dad. See, so he walks in with his oil on his head. His dad's like, hey, what's been going on? Probably wouldn't take long for everybody to say, your son was out there prophesying. His dad is suspicious. His uncle is suspicious. They're asking questions. And he's... So they, we went to Samuel. What did Samuel tell you? The donkeys have been found. Seriously, you had a personal encounter with a prophet and that's all he said? And then it specifically says he did not say anything about the kingship. Like if your kid got picked to be the president of the United States and doesn't tell you, wouldn't you take that kind of personally? <laughs> he did not kill the Philistines. You might think, yeah, but was he able to do the math? And the answer is yes. Because something's going to happen in a couple of chapters that's going to show you that he knew exactly what he was supposed to do. And the reason he didn't tell his parents is why. Or his uncle and his dad. Why didn't he tell his dad anything? He doesn't want to be king. And how do you tell your parents that you failed miserably on your first day? And then the 20 questions start happening. Well, what did he tell you? Why did he pick a king? What are you supposed to do? And then all of a sudden you got to start lying and making things up and because you failed miserably. Saul is a coward, just like Gideon, just like Barak, that when the Holy Spirit came upon him, he wasted it, completely wasted it. And so the first thing you've been introduced to Samuel or Saul is everybody seems to know more than him. And when he's given his first task to be king, he fails miserably just like all the other judges before him. 
Has anything changed? No. Why? Because they wanted a king like all the other nations. And that's exactly what they're going to get. And then he immediately goes on and says, then Samuel called the people. Why is Samuel calling the people? Because he's going to force Saul into kingship. (laughs) You were supposed to kill the Philistines. And that news of you prophesying and killing the Philistines all by yourself would have spread through the land like wildfire. And everybody would have known that you're king, but you didn't do it so nobody knows. So now we've got to force a public presentation. Because God chose you and nothing stops the word of God. So Saul fails miserably. God didn't pick Saul to fail. He picked Saul because he knew Saul would fail. He's giving Saul every chance to be a godly king. He even said, you will defeat the Philistines. Go, you will prophesy. Go, defeat the Philistines. God is not setting him up for failure. He just knows that Saul is the kind of person who will not succeed. And it's it's very important for you to understand that when God is not forcing these leaders or these people to fail or to be bad or to be ungodly or to make bad decisions, but that doesn't mean he doesn't know that they are going to do that. So Samuel called the people together before Yahweh at Mizpah, and he said to the Israelites, This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up from Egypt. I delivered you from the power of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your troubles and disasters, distress. You have said, No, appoint us a king of us. Now take your positions before Yahweh by your tribes and by your clans. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was chosen by Lot. Now, Lot is when they draw straws, or they, 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 throw their, um, they do something to pick it. So every tribe, 12 tribes come forward, and they're going to pull things out, and the Lot is going to pick them. And then they're going to take all the clans of that tribe, and they're all going to pull something, and that clan is going to be picked. Then they're going to take all the families of that clan, and they're going to draw until they find the right one, and then they're going to pick the person of that family. Every single time anybody is chosen by Lot, it's always bad. Achan, when he stole from God, he was chosen by Lot, and it led to his death. Later, Jonathan will be chosen by Lot, and it's going to lead to a whole bunch of things. Every single time something in the Bible happens where they're choosing somebody a lot, it, something bad always happens. Even right down to dividing up Jesus' clothing at the foot of his cross. Chosen by lot. And even when they pick the twelfth disciple by lot, when it should have been Paul as the twelfth disciple. Nothing good ever happens when they choose by lot. Because basically what they're leaving it to is random chance. Now, remember, Samuel is presiding over this as the prophet of God. But he's presiding because this is exactly the point that he's trying to make. (laughs) Nothing good happens when you're chosen by Lot. Now, who is controlling the Lot? Yahweh. So don't see this Lot as in random chance. It is being directed by Yahweh, but it's also being done by Lot to show that nothing good comes from being chosen by Lot. So God's hand is in the Lot. But it's also not usually the way that he works. Usually he works through the Urim and the Thummim, the stones that are controlled by the priests who actually are holy and talk to God. Not just random lots. So they chose families, the family of Matri, the chosen lot. Then last Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen by lot. But when they looked for him, he was nowhere to be found. 
So they inquired of Yahweh again, has the man arrived here yet? Yahweh said, he is hiding himself among the baggage. <laughs> Can you imagine the day when like Bush or Clinton or Obama or Trump is being anointed as president at the White House in front of the entire nation on CNN and Fox and everything. And they call him up to be, in, to be um, sworn in and they can't find him. And he's hiding in the back of some limousine somewhere. Yay, our president. <laughs> this makes it very clear he does not want to do this. There's an irony to not finding somebody in the crowd who's a head taller than everybody else. <laughs> so they ran and they brought him in front of there. And when he took his position among the people, they, he stood a head taller above everybody else. Then Samuel said to all the people, do you see the one whom Yahweh has chosen? Indeed, there is no one like him among all the people. All the people shouted, Long live the king! Maybe only the people in the front row knew he was hiding. Like, how, how does that not create worries for you? Oh, but don't worry. Some people are worried. Then Samuel talked to the people about the kingship, what it would, the work, and he, the requirements. And he wrote it all down in a scroll and set it before Yahweh. See, all they see is his looks. They're completely ignoring the fact that he's hiding. But all they see is a guy who's head taller and looks really good. And they're like, he's the one. Now, Samuel lays out the requirements for the king. What are the requirements for the king? This is found in Deuteronomy chapter 17, 14 through 20. There are five requirements for the king in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. And you read through this. And the first thing it says is that the king has to be an Israelite chosen by God. That's the first requirement. You can't pick a foreigner to rule. Now, does that mean that God's anti-foreigners? No, because the whole point of Israel was to get all the nations to become a part of Israel, right? The point is not, not, not that a non-Israelite is allowed to rule a non-ethnic Israelite, the point is that someone who's not a part of the Abrahamic covenant is not allowed to rule the Abrahamic covenant people. This is like saying we're not going to pick an atheist or a Muslim to be the pastor of our Christian church. It has nothing to do with ethnicity or nationality. It has everything to do with Abrahamic covenant. Because remember, technically, nobody's really a Jew. Abraham was not a Jew. A lot of the Egyptians that came out, Rahab wasn't one. The Jews aren't really even 100% biologically even Jews. This is about they must be a part of the Abrahamic covenant and they must be chosen by God. That's the first requirement. And then he goes in the second. He must not accumulate horses. He must not return to Egypt for any reason and he is not allowed to collect horses. Now, that does not mean that God is anti-horses anti the horse whisper. It means that horses were technological warfare. They are chariots. They are horses. The point is, if you put this in modern day language, is the king is not allowed to have airplanes, helicopters, tanks, aircraft carriers, destroyers, hunter killers, submarines, any of that kind of stuff. All you're allowed to have is soldiers with swords. That's it. Now, that's kind of scary when you're going up against people with chariots, the Philistines. Now, why does God say that? Because they're going to trust him. This is very important to understand. 
The prophet has now been brought into the picture. The prophet is brought into the picture before the king. Every single time Israel has gone against the enemy, God has always made the enemy kill each other, panic and run away, or he sent a storm or a flood to wipe them out. Does God need a military? No. And if they, with swords, defeat people with tanks and aircraft carriers, so to speak, then it will be so obvious that it is Yahweh. Just like it is totally ridiculous to make anybody walk around the city of Jericho to make the walls collapse. But the fact that it works means that the illogicalness of it, that it can never work, leads you to the logical conclusion that it was Yahweh. And so it forces you to trust in Yahweh as your military strength. Now that is not a requirement for us today because we are not the chosen people of God. The church is the chosen people, but America is not the chosen nation. That's the better way of saying it. We're not the chosen nation. These rules don't apply to us. Now, they do apply to us in the church in a different way. How would you translate that? Do we amass titles and lands and all this kind of stuff? I mean, yes, God tells us to invest and create bank accounts and that kind of stuff, but do we start making our bank account and all that stuff as a church the most important thing? And what God is doing is limiting their power here, limiting the, the king's power to trust in him. Then, here's what the other is saying. Who are the horses and chariot of God? The prophet is literally going to be called the horse and chariot of God. So what Yahweh is going to later develop in the kings is that you are not allowed to amass horses and chariots because the prophet is your horse and chariot. In fact, when we get to Elijah and the enemy is coming to attack them, the servant's like freaking out, and Elijah says, Oh God, open up his eyes so he can see. And there's an entire angelic army of horses and chariots and angels at the prophet's command. And the point is, the prophet is your horse and chariots. So if you amass horse and chariots, you're not trusting in the prophet of God. Because all you need is the prophet. All you need is Yahweh. The third requirement is that they're not allowed to collect wives. One, God is not pro-polygamy. He does not like polygamy. He never directly forbids it, but he gives you plenty of stories to make it very clear that he doesn't like it. It never amounts to anything good. But the reason that you would collect wives is for treaties. If I'm a great and powerful king, and there's a great and powerful king over there, and we want to make a treaty, we all know that you're writing your name on a piece of paper means nothing. America has violated every treaty we've signed. And other nations have too. It means nothing. But how do I ensure our treaty? I will take my daughter and give it to that king in marriage. And he will give me his daughter and give it to me in marriage. And what will happen is we'll have children. I am less likely to attack that king when my daughter and my grandchildren are in that home. There are some kings that are so jacked up they would still do it. But... The, the chances are way fewer of doing that than violating your signature on a piece of paper. But it also means this. Is there any other nation in the entire world that worships one God and one God only, Yahweh? So if I bring that daughter into my home, who am I bringing? A pagan. It's not that, remember, God's not anti-foreigners coming into the nation of Israel. Rahab, Tamar, Ruth, many other people. But what he's against is unconverted people coming to the nation. And now all of a sudden I've got this woman from another nation and she will bring her gods with her because she will. 
And then what will happen is if I make another treaty and another treaty and another treaty, right? Raising kids is really hard. There's so many things that you're going against in the culture of raising kids. And being married is hard too, right? And now you're married to 10, 12, 14 women who all worship different pagan gods and they're raising your children. What's the likelihood that they're going to have more influence over your child than you are? If you have 14 pagan women raising your children and you're one godly person, chances are you're not going to be godly for very long as they're tempting and straying you. And they're raising your children. And even if you remain godly your entire life and you die as king, who becomes king after you? Your pagan child. That's why God forbids this. Because one, you're trusting in treaties with other nations that are not godly to protect your borders instead of Yahweh. Two, he says, lest they will come in and corrupt your heart. Because here's the other thing that's really important. This is the first time that God is going to allow people to become king through biology. Remember, I just told you God doesn't do it that way. But that doesn't mean he can't change it. But when he changes it, he's the one to change it. See, Samuel had no right to decide leadership is now through genealogy. But God can decide leadership is now through genealogy. And so now when your leaders are through genealogy, you don't want 14 pagan women raising all the king's children. Because when the king is working all the time in politics, chances are he's going to have even less influence. And so godly women are so important for a marriage, for everybody, especially leaders. Especially leaders. So then the next criteria is that he's not allowed to collect money. He's not allowed to put all of his hope and trust in a bank account. He's not allowed to amass wealth. Now, God can give it to you like he gave it to Abraham, but you're not allowed to pursue it. And the last criteria is he's a get to a copy of the Torah, and he is to copy the Torah in his own hands. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he is to copy that entire book in his own hand, in his own handwriting, and he is to study it and meditate on it every single day of his life. Now, what is the point of these criteria? To limit the power of the king. To exactly make him not like the other nations. The whole point is if the king has no military, no bank account, he's not making treaties with other nations, he's reading and studying and meditating on the Torah every single day, and he was chosen by God, he doesn't have that much power. Which means he's not trusting himself, he's trusting Yahweh. This is important, because every king that we go through, for Samuel and kings, we're going to judge them by three criteria. And only because the narrator sets these criteria up. Every king will be judged by three criteria. The first criteria is, are they obedient to the moral code of the law? That's required of everybody. Do they obey the Ten Commandments? Are they obedient to the law? Everybody's required to do that. Then we know immediately when somebody begins to violate the law, they're not godly, especially if they don't repent. The second criteria that they'll be judged by is, do they meet the requirements of the Deuteronomic king? Do they meet the requirements of the Deuteronomic king? If they are violating that, then they're becoming more powerful than what they ought to be. And they're usurping Yahweh's authority. And the third criteria by which we're going to judge every king is, what is the relationship with the prophet? 
Do they have the prophet with them? Do they listen to the prophet? Do they obey the prophet? Do they even know who the prophet is? That will be important when we get to kings. And all those three criteria are how you judge a good or bad king. Do they obey the moral code of God and the law? Do they meet their Deuteronomic requirements? And what is the relationship with the prophet like? Because what God is saying is, I don't want a Melech. I want a Nagid. And Deuteronomy 17 ensures that, unless they completely violate and disobey. So that's the requirements that Samuel gives them and says to them. So verse 25, then Samuel talked to the people about how kingship should work, Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. He wrote it all down a scroll and set it before Yahweh. Then Samuel sent all the people away to their homes. Even Saul went to his home in Gibeah. With him went some brave men whose hearts God had touched. But some wicked men said, how can this man save us? They despised him and they did not even bring him a gift. But Saul said nothing about it. So God then surrounds Saul with men that he had changed their heart. So Saul is surrounded by godly men. And that's really important. If you're a leader, male or female, over anything, you know power can corrupt you so easily. And it's important to surround yourself with people who have the right to get in your face, who do not recognize your power. That's the key. You need to have accountability partners who do not recognize your power. And God does that. He surrounds him with godly men. He's setting Saul up for success. He's got a prophet of Yahweh. He was given the Holy Spirit. Godly men are surrounding him. He's not setting Saul up for failure. But then it says, some wicked me, sons of Belial, wicked, evil people, said, can this man really save us? Now, there, there's a, a double um, coin to this. These are evil men because who are they opposing? Yahweh's chosen king. And even though Saul's been picked for judgment, he was still picked by God. And to oppose Saul is to oppose Yahweh, and that makes them evil. But at the same time, is their question legitimate? Yes, it's legitimate on two levels. It's legitimate on a practical level. This guy was hiding in the baggage. Can he really save us? And it's legitimate on a theological level. Can this human save us? And the answer is, heck no. Because only Yahweh can save you. You need to understand this. This is such an interesting thing that God is doing in this book. God is okay with leaders. He's been lifting up judges and prophets, and he is all pro-leadership. But he's only pro-leadership if they are willing to submit themselves completely to Yahweh's authority. Because ultimately speaking, no man, no woman can lead you. No man, no woman can save you. No man, no woman can solve your problems. Only the one who's completely and absolutely submitted to the will of God and guided by God and being used by God can do that. And we forget this so often. Every time a new election comes along, all oh, the Democrats are going to save our country. All oh, the Republicans are going to... And we just go back and forth, right? We get a Democratic president. He comes his turn. We re-vote him in. He fails miserably. So we vote a Republican. He does a term. We re-vote him in. He fails miserably. 
I mean, that's, I mean, there's some exceptions, assassinations and other things. Johnson. <laughs> but overall, we just keep, the Republicans will now save us. Oh, they failed us for eight years. The Democrats will fail, save us. Oh, they failed us for eight years. The Re Stop putting your hope and trust. Even Trump comes along and we're like, oh, he's gonna, no, he won't. Unless these men and women submit themselves to the will of God, nothing will change. But even the church doesn't learn this lesson. And I'm saying this over and over again because we're not learning the lesson. These people in your churches are not godly men and women on their own. They're only godly men and women when they're in prayer, submitted to God, seeking out his will, saying, not my will be done, but yours. That's the only way. But too often we vote pastors in because they're charismatic or leaders because they, they're saying the right things. Or when they said about Trump, it doesn't matter what his character is as long as he gets things done. That's not, these aren't good criteria. And this is the point. You need to understand the theological message. that these, we, we know these stories, but we need to know the theological message that these stories are saying. And so they're, yes, who can save them? Only Yahweh. But the people are already on the wrong track because he's done it several times and they're not trusting God. But Saul said nothing about it. Is that good or bad? The narrator never really tells you. It's a big question. Is Saul acting very humbly by allowing these men to live and keep going? He's not acting like a tyrant and smashing them. But at the same time, there are really ungodly people questioning God's will, so should he have dealt with them? It's a huge question mark that the narrator ends you with. And the narrator is doing this because the whole question mark is on everything. It's on Saul. It's on the people. It's on the kingship. It's on how he reacted to the evil people. It's how he reacted to the anointing. It's everything. What you are now ending with is a giant question mark on Saul. Will he be the Deuteronomic king? That's the question. Because it's the only king that can really change Israel and lead Israel. is the Deuteronomic king. 